Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Growth investing and growth stocks in particular have, of course, been a massive theme this year. And so for a conversation about growth investing, we are delighted to be joined by one of the preeminent growth investors in the UK, perhaps even in the world, Charles Plowden of Bailey Gifford. Charles, welcome to the show. Great to have you here. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Charles, welcome to Investment Uncut. Before we kick into the conversation, could you just give a sort of brief description of what your role is at Bailey Gifford and, and what it involves on a day-to-day basis? Sure. My main role is as a frontline investor. I lead a team called the Global Alpha Team, which was set up about 15 years ago. And we now manage about £45 billion in that single strategy. So it's one of the two largest strategies Bailey Gifford offers. And firm-wide, we manage about £300 billion. On Global Alpha, I work with three other partners and a couple of analysts. So there's a small team of five. I've also, though, and probably more pertinent to today, I've been joint senior partner of Bailey Gifford since 2006. And while I used to be a hands-on manager of all of the investment floor, long since delegated most of that. So my focus now is primarily on the investment portfolios and the clients. And my management responsibility really is focused on the partnership, the partners themselves, and the firm's strategy. So that's really most of my time is as an investor, not a manager. So many interesting things there we want to get into, given all the experience you've got. But just before we get into that conversation, Charles, wondering if you could maybe tell us one thing we should know about you that we're not going to find on your LinkedIn profile. Yeah. Well, that's uh, quite a funny one because I don't have a LinkedIn profile. I don't have one that I have ever had anything to do with. And I've got no idea how many of my colleagues have a LinkedIn profile either. I've always thought of LinkedIn as a sort of jobs board for people looking to move jobs. And because I've never been looking for a job, I've never been interested in, in joining it. You've invested in a lot of tech stocks over the years, but by the sound of it, you never invested in LinkedIn, I suppose. Well, I think we probably did. I didn't personally, but some of our colleagues did. And of course, it's now owned by Microsoft, which we are interested in. So, yeah, I don't want to diss my own investments. (laughs) So back to basics at the start of this conversation, I think probably our listeners are aware of what growth investing is. But for you sort of personally, from right at the start of your career, why was it growth investing specifically that was so attractive to you? Why do you think it has that attractiveness? Well, probably then as the same as now is that growth is what investing and particularly equity investing is all about. Investing in companies which are growing the pie is so much an easier way of making money than fighting over slices of a static pie or even a shrinking pie. So I just think growth investing and growth in economies is what it is about. And anything else is to miss the point. That certainly resonates. But I guess the issue, the issue I've always thought is how do you then go about that whenever you're dealing with companies that are growing a lot? Of course, a lot of the value embedded is quite far in the future and therefore subject to quite a lot of uncertainties. I mean, who knows where we're all going to be in 10 or 20 years. So how do you go from that to building an investment process that can try and distill a little bit of certainty out of all that and put a try and come towards putting a price on some of these things? The key word there is putting certainty on it. 
we acknowledge that we can't put certainty on the future. The future is inherently uncertain. But what you can try and do is by focusing your thoughts and your research on a longer-term future, you can at least get it directionally right. You can see the trends. There's many trends that on a 10-year view are inevitable, but on a one- or two-year view are you know, complete toy costs. And we focus on what's inevitable over the medium term. So what's inevitable today might be autonomous vehicles or the drive towards renewable energy. Those are inevitable. Who knows whether it's going to come this year, next year, or in four years, but we know in 10 or 20 years it's going to be there. So we should be looking for investments now and not trying to be too precise. I think precision is the enemy of a lot of, a lot of investments. So we simply focus on the far future and we behave as though things are uncertain. So a lot of our opinions are held quite lightly. We're very happy to change our mind as evidence, as evidence accumulates. But I think this desire for certainty drags one back to what is already known, what is already close, and what is already very largely reflected in valuations. And I think that's hugely damaging to the return potential because you're always going to be the last man in if you're waiting for certainty. So growth investors are basically future tellers. I was going to say fortune tellers, but it's more science fiction than it is sort of backward looking analysis. I love that way of describing it, science fiction. It's fantastic. Does that mean sometimes you've just got to accept that you're investing in something that looks already pretty fully priced or pretty richly priced or priced for some degree of growth in the future? Is that just parcel of it? Well, that's part and parcel. What we do for, and certainly in my team, what we do for every company we own, I mean, not just when we buy them, but while we continue to own them, we've got to see a, a better than average chance of, in our case, doubling our money over the next five years. So that's targeting 15% type returns for portfolio. There's no certainty in that, but we need a better than 30% probability because 30% of companies do that. The monkey with the dartboard should get it right about 30% of the time. If we want to get it right more than 30% of the time, So it's not what a company looks like in relation to this year's earnings or last year's earnings. It's what it's going to look like relative to where earnings could plausibly get to in five or even 10 years time. And then what sort of valuation do you think the market will accord those earnings in five or 10 years time? In other words, if it's still growing, if its market's still expanding, it'll be on a high valuation. On the other hand, if by then it'll have 98% market share of a market that's gone X growth, you'd expect it to be on a low valuation. So we are modeling. And I know people keep saying, how could you own Tesla? It's obviously overvalued. Well, for some, it's looked overvalued for the last eight years. To us, it's always looked full of pregnant with potential for the last eight years. And that's just because we're looking maybe further ahead as to what it might be able to achieve and then ascribing probabilities to that. I just dispute that growth stocks are inherently expensive or overvalued. It really depends what happens. It's how big their revenues are, how high their margins will be, and how the market will perceive them in five years plus time. Mm. You mentioned Tesla then, and I guess over the sort of span of your career, there must have been times where that approach emotionally almost is more difficult to stick to when there are stocks behaving perhaps in unnatural ways, as we've seen over times in history. Are there any other moments you reflect on thinking back over your career where that position felt not very comfortable, but actually was the right long-term position to be having? I mean, the obvious 
parallel that people would make is 99, 2000, you know, the TMT bubble. And I think at the time, one was aware then that valuations, you really were having to look 10 years ahead to justify valuations. And I remember one of the UK's best tech analysts came up with this thing called white space, which was he did a sort of NPV, net present value of his business or the business today. And then he said the difference between that and the market cap is white space. That's optionality, if you like. There's an assumption that the company is going to invent something that hasn't yet been thought of. We're no longer near that. We can more than justify Tesla's valuation today on the basis of the products that they've got and the markets that they're in and the volumes that they can achieve and the prices and the costs that they're already talking about and already modeling. So we're a long way away from 99, 2000 levels of ridiculous valuation. We think valuations are not ridiculous. And that really comes down to the fundamentals. We think the fundamentals are getting better. A side point on Tesla, the share price over the last 12 months has been utterly extraordinary. But the share price over the previous five years to us was also utterly extraordinary. The share price didn't move for five years when the company had almost entirely de-risked. It had proven the concept. It had launched two new car models. It had moved into China and Germany, ramping up volumes. And yet the share price hadn't changed from around about 2015, 2014. The share price was $200 forever. And then it's sort of this year, you know, that has been corrected. I think there was a bit of a coiled spring or a sort of catapult effect there. Is that part and parcel of it then? You have to live with the fact that the market is going to realise these valuations potentially quite unevenly. And at any given point, it could feel you're going to have loads of people screaming, oh my God, it's a bubble because it's gone up so much. Whereas you're saying you're sticking to your horses, if you like, and saying, well, no, that's just fair catch up for where we see the story over the last five years and not getting caught up in shorter term optics. of Absolutely. I mean, you put your finger on it. And the fact the share price has gone up does not mean it's expensive. The share price may have gone up for very good reasons. It might have sort of solved its financing issues or the competition might be sort of withdrawing or there's lots of reasons why valuations should go up and that's why we run the second part of that is why we run portfolios of investments we don't just pick one and put all our eggs in that basket because we don't know when the market's going to reflect the fundamentals so what we like is a large number of what we describe as the more shots at goal you have the more goals you're likely to score and we don't know when they're going to score but we're pretty sure that on average over time we will score. So there's a portfolio effect reduces the risk of an individual investment. And I think a lot of investors worry far too much about the downside of each and every one of their investments. And in so doing, they become far too conservative and cautious and they give up almost all of the upside. Bit of a controversial question maybe here, but I just wonder, would you maybe even go as far as to say that Part of the opportunity for growth stocks is created by a little bit of a group think around people focusing on things like price earnings ratios and those sort of things and getting quite hung up on some of those fundamental metrics, which pushes them away from the stocks that they would call more expensive under those measures. Yeah, definitely. I thought you were going to ask me the other side of that. I think I said at the beginning, we see ourselves as pretty unusual in this focus on growth. We don't have lots of people copying us. It's a very uncrowded market because we think most, particularly institutional investors, in other words, the bigger firms, there may be some boutiques that think more like we do, 
But most of the bigger firms are much too concerned about near-term valuations, about short-term volatility, about divergence for an index, and all these things that anchor you back to being Mr. Average and owning Mr. Average or Miss Average stocks. People don't follow the logic, which is if you're there to make money, then try and identify the companies that will make you the most money, even if maybe even half of them won't work. The whole point about equities is the, the asymmetry of returns. You get one right, you can make tens, even hundreds times your money. If you get it wrong, the most you can lose is one times your money. Asymmetry is something that we've become ever more aware of, that you don't have to be right even half the time. You can be wrong two thirds of the time, as long as when you're right, you run your winners and you allow the profits to accrue. So in the likes of Amazon or, or even Tesla, you know, we have made tens Amazon is about 80 times our money since we first invested. In Tesla, it's now about 60 times our money since we first invested. And that's in less than 10 years in Tesla's case. So it's this asymmetry, the upside. And if you were scared that you might lose money, you would never have gone near Tesla. You probably still wouldn't invest in Tesla because, you know, it could go bust. It might not work. BMW might defeat it. But the odds of BMW coming out on top are much less than they were early on. So the rewards go to the brave in terms of investment. The rewards in fundamental terms go to the management team with the right mix of ambition, capability, vision, and probably flexibility. They do need to change course and react to events. So most of the most successful companies that we've invested in have pivoted, have changed course. They're not, they don't look the same as they looked seven or eight years ago. They've changed radically. And thinking about that, and I guess how the characteristics, I suppose, of the types of stocks you find attractive and whether there are any sort of trends about how they've changed over the time of your career. So you started, if I'm right, in with a UK focus and expanded to more of a global focus still a number of years ago. So you've still got a huge depth of experience investing globally. Are there characteristics of growth stocks that you find attractive today that are very different to the way companies were being run in the 80s or are there trends that are the same? I think it's very different now. And the main difference is we're in a completely different era for growth investing because of technology, because of the number of new technologies that have emerged over the last 20 years, probably. First of all, it was mobility, mobile phones. Then it was the, the internet. And now it's the cloud and data and artificial intelligence. Then there's the whole healthcare revolution going on, genomics. And again, that ties in with data and AI. The point being that scalability for most many, many businesses is so much easier and more rapid than ever before. You can literally flick a switch and go global overnight as Netflix did. I think it launched in 100 countries in one day. These companies tend to be asset light, so they don't need bank finance or they don't need frequent equity issuance. Like back in the 80s, I don't know what the growth stocks would have been there. British Airways or something, probably. And every time it wanted a new plane, it had to raise capital and then it had to sort of, you don't have to do that anymore. Not only has the type of company changed, but the sort of finance, the, the financing requirements have changed. The global potential has increased massively. And I think there has been a major geographic split. So Essentially, most of the new ideas, the new businesses are coming from the West Coast of America and the East Coast of China. 
typically they're not coming from Europe. They're almost definitely very, very rarely coming from the UK. Japan remains something of a walled garden, a closed system. There's very few global Japanese technology companies, but generally foreigners find it hard to get into Japan. Probably India is going to be the same. That'll be another walled garden uh, protected. And China, increasingly, as we know, a walled garden. So it's fragmented. It's different. And the key factor, I think, therefore, one for me, who's, and you said I used to run UK equity portfolios, the move to global was just like waking up after a long sleep, the potential, the ability to go anywhere and find the best in the world rather than being limited to the small number of large businesses available in the UK was huge. So I think globalization is the other big change and not political globalization. I just mean the the ability to be multinational. I guess a lot of people sort of bemoan the lack of growth stocks and tech stocks in in Europe. Can you see that changing anytime soon? Do you see any potential for growth companies to come through out of Europe? Well, I think there are hubs. And I think in Europe, there are certainly sort of areas of strength. I'm sort of slightly less familiar. Scandinavia is very strong in life sciences, for example. Northern Europe has got very strong in some of these payments companies, the new payment. It's possible exceptional Wirecard, which is the one that had a bit of a fraud and went bust the other day. There are pockets of it. There's not the ecosystem that you get in Silicon Valley or in China. We're all trying to catch up and people are working more closely with universities and spin-outs and so on. But I think we're so far behind that getting the best talent and that sort of thing is going to prove difficult. It's like so much these days that the winners will keep winning because they've either got the scale or they've got the capital or they've got the audience. It's ever harder to catch up, which is a shame. But as a global investor, I'm sort of less nonplussed by it. You mentioned Silicon Valley then. I wondered if we sort of do a little bit of a focus on the tech stocks. You mentioned, obviously, the trends that you've seen throughout your career. And of course, tech stocks have been exceptional, I suppose, this year. And of course, one of the reasons why tech stocks have done particularly well this year is all around the scenario we find ourselves in and the fact that people aren't able to travel and move around, but actually technology is something that able to sort of use. Presumably, you as a house weren't predicting the coronavirus crisis, but you did have a heavy and healthy holding in technology. So I guess I'm interested in the reasons why you were holding those companies presumably isn't the reason they've particularly done well this year. But is there some similarity in the sort of trend, nevertheless? Yeah, there's quite a lot in that. But the reason that we held them is going back to what I said earlier, that to me, it's a certainty on a 10-year view that if you had the choice, your groceries would be delivered to your door, or you had to drive to a supermarket and stand in a queue and do all that, hand over dirty money, and then surely you would choose the delivery option. And then if I told you that in five years' time, home-delivered groceries will probably be cheaper than go and collect your own from the supermarket, if there was an economic benefit as well, and this is what Ocado is doing, the sorting, the automated sorting in their warehouses will be so efficient that it'll be much cheaper than going from distribution to store. And even if we go and pick it up ourselves and put it in a basket and take it to the door, it will be cheaper and more efficient for them to do it for us and deliver it to our door. So when there's an economic benefit, and it's similar with the electric cars, you know, at the moment you pay a premium for an electric car, but in five or 10 years' time, they will be cheaper. 
And at that point, why wouldn't you? So there's been a lot of these trends that we just think it is better. The choice is better. The price is better. It's easier to return things. I don't own shares in in my fund, but Peloton, the connected gym, you know, training. When you think about it, you go to a gym and you're getting changed in a sweaty place with someone sort of pushing you on behind. And a lot of people are anxious in gyms and sort of body shy, whatever it is. Whereas if you can exercise in the comfort of your home and have a shower in your own shower and you don't have to put your shoes and socks on to when you've finished, I mean, isn't it better? There's so many aspects where it is better. And so it was inevitably happening. So many of them have said they've progressed. Growth has accelerated from X to Y over the last six months. The best one I heard was Ocado, who said that they've had more growth in 15 weeks in the spring than they'd had in the previous 15 years in terms of home delivery demand for their home delivery services. The pandemic has accelerated trends that were already happening, that were already unstoppable, and it's just made it happen really fast. You could say, well, that isn't necessarily creating huge value. It's just bringing forward demand. But in many cases, it's dealing with the competitive threat much more. Other people, Zoom is a good example. We talked about Zoom. I mean, again, some of my colleagues, quite a lot of my colleagues do own Zoom. In my team, we discussed it in January and we thought, now, you know, Microsoft will just copy Zoom and do it better and they'll package it in with Microsoft Office and Zoom as an independent company, not much hope. But because of the speed of adoption of Zoom, it's actually going to be really hard now, even for Microsoft, to displace them. And that is hugely valuable for Zoom. That's made it go from a, the early leader, but probably not going to survive, to the established incumbent with the scale and all the benefits that come with that. So we didn't want the pandemic. It has accelerated a lot of return, but it's also cemented competitive positions. And it's taught people, it's habit changed, changing habits. So instead of gradual adoption increase, you're seeing very rapid adoption increase, and it's not all going to go back. You know, who's dying to get back to the supermarket? I mean, I'm not, you know. When you were saying that, I was thinking, I've always felt like I didn't have time to set up the online order that I knew I would then just repeat every week for eternity, pretty much, because I don't have that much exotic differences in what I eat week to week. But actually spending that time setting it up is something I never found time to do. Once you're forced to do it, you've set it up and then it is a no brainer that it's easier to just repeat the order every time. They just come regularly. Can you characterise the split of your time between trying to unearth the next growth ideas, I don't know, the Zooms or the Pelotons or whatever a few years ago, versus trying to put scenarios around the current big growth firms, you know, the ones, I don't know, the Teslas, the Amazons you've been in for a while, because I guess it must be a mix of both, right? Yes, it is. And I probably couldn't guess at the time split. I mean, I said that we do this upside, retest the upside regularly for every company in the portfolio. So you know, if we're going to sell something because it's gone up a lot, it'll be because we can no longer see further. It's not as easy to see further gains in valuation. So there's a lot of focus on the existing portfolio. But at the same time, we're probably discussing, even within our team, one or two new investment ideas every week. So we run a portfolio of 100 stocks, and we're probably talking, talking about all of those regularly. And we're talking about new ideas, probably close to 100 of them a year. Maybe at the team level, it's 50-50. I look for reassurance on what we own 
more than I do prospecting for new ideas myself. But I think there's something about age and best use of time in that. So do you feel that fits with different people more naturally, that some people fits better with evaluating the current portfolio, some people it fits better with new ideas? Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, there are people who are better at selling stocks than at buying them. It is a different skill, if you like. The buying of these new stocks, often it does take quite a lot of imagination and persuasive skills. You have to persuade old fuddy-duddies like me that actually Peloton is a real business, not just a fact. So that's a hurdle that companies have to get over. There is different. I mean, I don't think I can be more specific than that, but there are different skills. And one of the things about sort of the team I work in is that there are three of us who make the decisions. We're very different personalities. We've got a, an outrageously bullish investor. We've got quite a cautious Scottish sort of conservative investor. And then you've got me in the middle who can sort of go either way. And that has worked very well. It gives us a broader portfolio. Almost every stock we look at differently from each other. There's no mono think there. That's interesting because we could be fooled into thinking that you're all these sort of rampant optimists, like absolutely bullish to the max the whole time to ever sort of invest in these stocks. But it doesn't sound like that's actually the case. No, it's not the case. I mean, it might be in the case in one or two extreme circumstances where you've got a hyper growth team. You have to believe in hyper growth to do it. But our portfolio is also, you know, it's not all about rapid growth stocks and what you said, tech stocks. There was one point I wanted to make when you were talking about that. In 10 years' time, every stock, every company that's still alive will be a technology company. One question I feel I kind of have to ask is about QE and bringing up the classic criticism that a lot of people would level, that the sort of QE stimulative policies have kind of pumped up all these growth stocks. What's your view on that? Honestly, it's not something that I think about or that we think has had a material impact. You know, how big has the influence of QE been on Amazon or Microsoft or, or even Tesla's growth over the last decade? It may be a point or two on a price earnings ratio or a you know, slightly lower discount rate, but the winners are winning because they're winning in the real world, not because of some you know, financial ratio or the availability of capital. Most of these winning companies are not dependent on bank borrowings. They're not beneficiaries, you know, very low borrowing rates. And in fact, they suffer. They're mostly net cash anyway. So it's not that they're being subsidized by the businesses or individuals. Our view is just the fundamentals driving these, not any external abstract. Sure. To what extent do you think the current accounting frameworks sort of fail to properly account for growth companies? And I'm thinking there are things like software as a service type revenues, intangibles, investment in intangibles versus sort of book type investments, investments in intangibles coming out of the earnings line, all those sort of things. In what ways do they kind of mask kind of growth companies, do you think, or make it harder to analyze them? I don't think they do. I mean, I can promise you it's not that we've got some secret financial adjustment we make to the profit loss that radically changes the current valuations. I think, again, it's a point that's come up two or three times. If you are a very profitable capital light company and you expense all of your investments each year, then probably you are understating. Amazon is understating its profits because it does expense everything in year one. It doesn't capitalize it and write it off over 10 years as a supermarket or someone else would do. So arguably, yeah, they are a lot cheaper than they might look. But that's not why we own them. They look cheap even on the existing accounting basis. It's just they have a higher quality of earnings than many companies. So I don't think 
that isn't a big factor in our thinking or our analysis. Charles, thank you so much for reflecting over your career. There was a point just earlier where you reflected forward 10 years and talked about all all companies being tech companies. I guess on that sort of forward-looking basis, I wondered if you would be able to comment on sustainability and to what extent that's relevant now and will become more relevant, I suppose, as time goes on. That's the easiest question. The answer is yes. One needs always to be investing with the grain of society. And I think climate change and efforts to combat climate change are an absolute certainty on a 10-year view. And every year they become more of a certainty. So this is exactly a good example of where just looking to the future rather than the past can lead you into the right sort of areas. And I think climate risk is investment risk. And going back to the question about QE and so on, I think for companies with a limited lifespan, those that aren't responding, their discount rate is going to go up. But for those who are trying to solve the problems of the world, their discount rate will go down and capital will get cheaper and their valuation should go up. So I think it's just another growth opportunity, but it's even less discretionary than many of the others. So it's going to happen, money's going to flow in, and I don't see any conflict between companies doing good and companies being good investments. Fantastic. And that's a really nice, positive note to end our discussion on. Charles, it would feel slightly remiss, I think, if we didn't mention that we've referred to your long career over this discussion. And I understand you're due to retire, is it next April? That's right. End of April. Yeah. Right. A cleverly timed, I'm going to exit at the top, or, or is this really just the tip of the iceberg on the trends that we've been seeing over the last few years? I very much hope it's the tip of the iceberg. And I think Bailey Gifford's in particular, is fantastically well set up for the next 10 years with a a strong reputation, a strong philosophy, great people. And the world really is full of opportunity for the firm. I really am 100% certain I'm not getting out at the top. I will be very sad to leave, but very proud of what we've done. We like to try and leave our listeners with one clear takeaway from each episode. So what's the one thing you'd like people to take away from our conversation today? Well, I hope this has come through, but I don't see growth investing as a style that can be picked up and put down, or indeed a set of factors that can be sort of mimicked by some computer. Growth investing is a philosophy and a set of beliefs. It just makes so much sense. It's so logical that I am just amazed that other people, more people, don't approach investment this way. Fantastic. And Charles, final question from me. And again, we ask all our guests this. What would you say is the most underappreciated thing about investing? Well, I don't know if it's underappreciated or just misunderstood, but I can absolutely acknowledge that the investment industry at large has badly let itself down over the last 10 or 20 years. The reaction to the financial crisis, the sort of dislike of bankers and finance and investment was entirely justified. And I think the industry lost its way. So I think what is underappreciated about investing is that it can and should be a force for good. Charles, final comment, perhaps any recommendations for the listeners, perhaps stuff you're adding to your reading list for next April and beyond? I think I have to do a plug here for the, some of your readers may know, Bailey Gifford sponsors a book prize, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction, which used to be called the Samuel Johnson Prize. And I would strongly recommend all shortlisted, six shortlisted books for this year's prize. The winner will be awarded towards the end of November. 
it's the equivalent of the Booker Prize or the Man Booker Prize for which is for fiction, we're the non-fiction. So we firmly believe in writing, in reading, in learning, in collaborations with authors and uh, academics. And I would recommend, I think any of those books will advance people's understanding and thinking of the world around them. Well, Charles, it's been an absolutely great discussion today. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Stu. It's been very enjoyable. Charles, it's been a pleasure. That's all we have time for this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.